First off, I'm sure there's some missing blanks. Any missing blanks? Linda Chisholm already came up and copied off my note sheet, so... Um, Sorry, it's all the place. Okay. Okay. Um, now, even though we're not mic, even though we're not let me make sure this is on. Even though we're not amplifying this, we do need to speak into the microphone. So for the ABF, um, and uh, I had somebody text me like in the middle. Colleen, you'll you'll get a kick out of this. Someone last week, yesterday, texted me in reference to me saying soccer mom sins. I got this text going soccer mom sins. That's great. <laughs> so there's like twelve people that listen to it. Man, they. They appreciate you guys talking to the microphones. Um, so, um, so questions. I got a couple of places I'd be interested in going, but first, Anna Cook. <laughs> okay, um, when you were talking about um, the glory, yes, like seeking His glory, and how people can wander away from that. Yeah, is that can you like are those people who are saved and then they wander away what does that look like sure. i mean it's not losing salvation right but then just can you explain that a little bit more the t- the 10,000 foot example is this no one truly called of god regenerate will ever fall away it will sure look to us as though people we could have sworn were believers aren't the new testament speaks to both realities so first john Go to First John with me. Um, two. So the New Testament's written to churches, which is a mixed group. There, are, the church is the body of professing believers. But of those professing believers, some will persevere and prove the genuineness of their faith, and some, First John two talks about, will depart to evidence they weren't saved to begin with. So from our perspective, people. We've got to encourage each other to persevere. And the New Testament warns us, make sure you don't fall away. Like, so within the confines of the church, there's the very real possible that people you're sitting next to you may fall away. When that happens, 1 John chapter 2 makes it clear, uh, verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. So when someone who we thought was of us departs from their profession of faith, it's making plain they never were part of us. But nevertheless, there are plenty of warnings in the New Testament to the church. Go go to Hebrews 3, the one I bungled quoting today. Um, Hebrews 3 is a great example of this. Um, and the, and the book of Hebrews in particular is, is filled with exhortations to persevere and be careful and don't presume upon the grace of God. So Hebrews three twelve, take care, brothers. So we're talking to believers, or at least we're talking to the professing believers, right? We're talking to those people we would recognize as Christians, right? Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So in addition to seeing glory, another thing I need is encouragement from other believers. This is why solo Christianity, just me and Jesus walking off into the sunset, doesn't work. I need you all for me to remain faithful. And we all need each other to do that. Here's another one of the guards. And then he says in verse 14, and here's where verb tenses are huge, right? For we have come to share in Christ, 
if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So verb tenses, and I know that I think there's an ESV update that confuses this. What I just read is accurate. So you've got a past tense. We have, literally it's a perfect verb tense. We are in the state of having come to know Christ, is how McDougall would have me translate that. We are in the state currently of having come to know Christ. Something authentic happened in the past if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. If you don't hold your original confidence firm to the end, what does that mean? Work it backwards in the verse. Something in the past didn't happen authentically. It's not that you lost your faith. We prove, verse 14, for we have come to hold, we have become sharers in Christ. Jeremy Kidder has become a Christian back in the summer of 1999 if Jeremy Kidder finishes to the end. If Jeremy Kidder doesn't finish into the end, what it calls into question is not whether I lost my salvation. It calls into question what I think happened in 1999. Does that make sense? So those are the types of warnings we've got. But the reality is people we know, I'm sure if you've been a Christian long enough, you've got people you could have sworn were genuine, regenerate people who now are not following the Lord. Now their story's not over yet. The Lord, the shepherd can come and get them. But if they ultimately do not return, if they, if they went out and that's the final word on them, they should expect to perish period, full stop. Um, and, and the New Testament deals with that reality. Even as the New Testament insists, Jesus is saying, no one can slip through my hands. So I am never more fearful than I know in my heart I'm straying and I'm not, someone's not coming with a rod and a crook to get me. I, that's when I get nervous. <laughs> Conversely, I never feel more safe and secure than when the Lord's disciplining me. Um, I, I know, I'm, I mean, it's Hebrews 12, right? Go to, go to chapter 12. Um, Verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Why? Discipline's not fun. Well, it's a sign of love. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? The sad reality is nowadays in today's culture, all sorts of people raising their hands. Um, but when, when the author of Hebrews is writing, it's assumed. If you are left, now look at verse 8. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If you're able to walk off in rebellion, and no shepherd leaves the 99 to come get you, and no fatherly discipline happens to you, you're proving you're not his kid. doesn't mean you stopped being his kid. It's a way of identifying who and what things are. So, no, you can't lose your salvation, but the reality is there are going to be people that are going to stun you when they walk away, and you pray for them, and you hope they come back, and you pray and hope they come back, and yet some of them won't, and they're going to prove they never were. It's like, the, it's like the seed that falls among rocky soil, springs up for a little while, receives the word of joy, and then dies, right? Um, is, do you want to go further with that, or is that answering your question, or is there more nuance you're asking for? Oh! Yeah, yeah. So do the people that walk away, like, do they... Do they know that that's what, I mean, do they think no. that they were saved no, and then I, I, they walk I, this away? Is, this, is what's, this is what's terrifying, right? So Matt, go to Matthew 7 with me. Um, it is a mistake to think false converts know they're false converts. 
I would not assume false converts know they're false converts. Jesus doesn't assume that in Matthew 7. There are at least some people who on the day of judgment are terribly surprised at their fate and they object to it. And I do not think when they're standing before God, they're bluffing and lying. I think we're seeing genuine consternation and what? And so in Matthew 7, Jesus, after talking about how you identify a tree by its fruit, in verses 15 to 20, just read verse 20. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. This is about how you identify people. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And pause. It's not salvation by doing the will of God. Rather, you evidence your nature, like he just said, by the fruit, by what you do. So you can tell the ones who are going to enter into heaven because they're about the will of their father. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and work in Awana in your name and teach Sunday school in your name and all sorts of religious observance that they did? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So, no, these people didn't know that they were false converts. There's at least, well, many here who are completely surprised and shocked. So, no, I would not assume that, that false converts are aware they're false converts. And in my own personal testimony, I wasn't. I, I made a false profession of faith when I was a little kid. And, you know, I, I had this sort of... You know, God will let me and I'll be okay. And it's actually this passage that the Lord used to make me realize I was lost so I could get saved in the summer of 99. This in 1 John 2. So I would say from personal experience, I, di- I think deep- I knew I-, I was deeply unsettled in my soul. I did not feel comfortable with where I was at, but I still sort of thought I'll skid by, slid by, you know. I sort of thought when I got to heaven, God would say, oh, it's you. Well, well okay, come on in, you know, like that. And I read this, I was like, uh-oh, <laughs> you know. That that's, that that's not going to work. F- further, or you want to go further with this? Or? I mean, this, is a, this is an important and huge topic. I'm happy to spend all the time you want talking about this. Then how do you know that you're saved? <laughs> like, if you think you are, but then, like, how can you, you know? Um, as it turns out, on Reformation Sunday of 2020, I teach a message titled... <laughs> The Reformation and Assurance of Salvation. We were I'll be here happy to day. recap it for you, but <laughs> yeah. go, back, go back to that. The New Testament offers three bases of assurance, um, each of them sequentially more authoritative than the last. The first and most simple is cognitive, right? The co- this is the assurance the person hearing the gospel call gets. The gospel says, if you will turn in faith, you will be saved. I, I will be saved, you know, and you believe that offer, and, and it's cognitive. The Bible says, if I believe, I'll be saved. Well, I just believed, and so I'm saved. You get a, it's the cognitive, immediate assurance. It's trusting God's word, right? It, God said he'd save those who call unto him. I've called unto him. There's an assurance that can be given. There's an experiential um, assurance. So Romans 8 talks about his spirit testifying with our spirit, that we are sons of God. We have not received a spirit of fear, going back into slavery, but a, fear, a spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. New affections, new delights, new pleasure, new longings, these all testify to the work of the spirit in our heart. But on top of those two, which most of the Western church is quite comfortable with, most loves that, is the dominant New Testament theme, which is, what do you do? Not because you're earning anything, but the tree is known. It's, it's Jesus. The tree is known by its fruit. And, and I'd say this is not entirely an individual 
inspection. Because the temptation for me is to either be too hard or too easy. This is, again, why we need each other. Because as we encourage each other, as we speak to see in growth, one of the reasons I know I'm a Christian is because this body confirms and testifies my, to my profession of faith. That, and one of the reasons you can have confidence you're a believer is because you're part of a body that knows you and testifies and receives. So part of what we're doing in membership is saying, okay, you got a confession. Can we hear it? Let's hear your confession. And then we respond by saying, that seems credible. That seems good. Amen. Welcome in. And then as we are responsible, that Hebrews 3 passage, we all, go back to Hebrews 3. Um, perseverance of the saints is a group project. Yes, there's individual responsibility, but notice the shifts from singular and plural terms. Take care, brothers. So I'll use the Southern y'all. Yeah. <laughs> y'all take care. What are, what are we all taking care for? That there be in any one. The entire group is alert for something to happen in one person. He's not saying you all take care that for each of you. It's not, if you use this room. He's not saying everybody in this room, make sure each and every one of you doesn't fall away. The, the admonition is we all are keeping our eye out that in any one of us, something's happening. There's a corporate responsibility for this. It's not purely individual. So take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you, any one of you, an evil, unbelieving heart, leading to fall away from the living God. Okay, well, how do we guard against that? We're constantly exhorting each other. We're constantly encouraging each other. So, ultimately, church discipline is put in place as a way for the body, in part, to say, we no longer recognize your profession of faith. We no longer have any confidence that you know the Lord. We no longer have any confidence that you're going to heaven. And so, the body, one of the testimonies to our our lives is the body receiving the right hand of fellowship. Paul goes up to Jerusalem. He interviews with the three so-called pillars, Peter, James, and John. They welcome him in, and he receives the right hand of fellowship. Their acceptance of him is is confirmation, external confirmation. There's our own testing ourselves. So 2 Corinthians 13 tells us to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. And so through believing God's promises, through the testimony of the Holy Spirit, through my own regular examination of my life. And I'm looking for like a tree bearing fruit. I'm looking for growth. I'm looking for a trend. Which way am I moving? Which path am I on? It's not a bar that I'm meeting, but rather it's looking back and saying, I can see the work of the Spirit over the last 10 years of my life. And the encouragement of other people as they see me grow, as they bring sin to me and I respond faithfully. I can see, I think I'm acting like a sheep. I think I'm, I think I'm sheeping, Right? Um, conversely, when, this is again why solo Christianity doesn't work, we lose that check. When other b- believers are trying to interact with you and you're telling them to get lost and you're, what, what, you're not acting much like a sheep, and as you, as you double down on that, because you know, church discipline isn't like a zero to 60 thing, it's a one, then two or three, then the whole body calling on you and you eventually say, hey, leave me alone. Well, by the time you get to that point, you're, you're kind of making it clear where you're at and what you're doing. So it's not that we're supposed to go to bed and going, I wonder if I'm a Christian. God's put these measures and these checks in place. And a big one is the check of the confirmation of the local body. I mean, but it's, it's so against American individualism to say you need a local church to have assurance of salvation. You do in part, absolutely. That's one of the measures of assurance. It's not the only one. 
You need, you need growth in bearing fruit. By this we know, 1 John 2, 3, by this we know that we have come to know him that we keep his commandments. I, I could point you to a dozen things. By the, so it's our right confession. We're doctrinally orthodox. We're, we're loving the brethren. We're dealing with our sin. We're pursuing Christ. But the biggest test of, uh, go to Second Peter, I'll show you. The biggest test is the fruit we bear because the Bible assumes what you believe you act on. Always, everywhere, without exception. Sin, for me, is lived out unbelief. When I sin, I'm believing a lie. My heart says, you can let your wife serve you and not serve her. You can sit back and relax. And I say, yeah, I do deserve it. And then I act, right? I act upon what I believe in the moment. In every moment, I'm acting on my real belief system. And so sin is lived out unbelief, and obedience is lived out faith. And so Second Peter says this. Pick it up in verse three. What is, the, the flow of the argument is going to be, here's what God's done for you. In the light of what God's done for you, here's how you ought to respond. And then he's going to say, and as you respond that way, you can confirm your salvation. So that's the flow of three to t- 11. Here's what God's done for you in verses one to f- three to four. In five through 11, here's how you should respond. And here's how, as you gauge your response, you give yourself assurance. And this isn't the only means of assurance, but it, as I read my New Testament, this is the dominant means. And the reason why I say that is I will frequently meet people who have no fruit in their life. They have only thorns, and they are clinging to some emotional experience and some decision they made 10 years ago. And I think the New Testament would say what you're doing and what you're evidencing you believe and love and trust in today trumps anything you think you did 20 years ago. Um, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become a partaker of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So God has given you all these promises. He's given you all this knowledge. He's given you everything you need. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So seven virtues that you add to your faith. So you don't get saved by doing these things. You already have faith. And now, make every effort to add these seven virtues. And look what he says. For, he'll say it negatively first, if these qualities are yours and increasing, well, he says it positively, but he says the positive through a negative, which can be confusing. They keep, no, no, look. They keep you from being unfruitful and ineffective. There's the negative. What does that mean? You are fruitful. You are effective. If these things, so the key is growing. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, it's not a bar you have to meet. It's a direction you're headed in. If you're growing in these qualities, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, what qualities? Five through seven, those qualities. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, you'll be richly provided with, for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's my favorite passage for assurance. Because John, First John's really written for assurance. But it's so black and white. It's rough. You know, and I'm like, well, do I keep his commandments? I, I try to. 
Sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. Here, it's, are you growing? Are you more loving today than you were last year? Are you, are you more self-controlled this week than five years ago? Are you growing? Then be assured. This is how you confirm your calling and election. Right? Now, it's not the only way. His spirit testifying with our spirit, the emotional thing. But, but, the, but the dominant thread in the New Testament would be the fruit you're bearing as it reveals your affections. Because the heart's deceitful. And you can deceive yourself. And so the best way to tr- find out what your true theology is is find out what you think about, what you do, where you spend your time, where you spend your money, because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we can think, the danger is we can think we treasure Christ when we really could look at your life. No, you treasure money, clearly. You, you, you treasure promotion and success, clearly. Oh, you know, and I think that's part of the problem of people saying, Lord, Lord, is... So it's, we want to be clear. It's not these pe- not we're being saved by doing these things. This is confirming. This is identifying. This is um, revealing the nature of something. But yeah, this is, yeah, that's a long answer. Does that help you want any further? This is a no, huge yeah, topic. No, so that's good. That was so bringing it full circle is yeah. that if we're if we are we will um, search for his glory. Yeah. If we are saved. Well, and this is part, no, and this is part, and what I'd say, this is part of the beauty of the local church, is God's good and he shepherds his flock, and one of the ways he shepherds his flock is in the local church. And so rather than wondering, am I beginning to apostle? Like, worry when people are talking to you and you're not listening to them, when people are calling you to repentance and you're telling them to get out of your face. That's when I'd start getting worried. Mm-hmm. Um, that because, I mean, that's like the white blood cells in the body is as we, as we live with each other, as I live with you, as you guys are at my house, you're going to see me sin. And if you're hopefully you're going to love me enough to at some point talk to me, and then I can respond, well, wow, thank you. I didn't, awesome. I'll rep- and like, what does that do? I mean, nothing to me is greater evidence of the spirit dwelling in someone than them receiving rebuke and correction, thankfully. Because there's no other way to explain it, right? Um, nothing to me is more um, uh, encouraging than someone who receives correction well. And um, conversely, nothing can be like, uh-oh, than when someone's, like, getting their dander up and, like, that, uh-oh. <laughs> because we're the people who admit we're all miserable, broken people trying to follow Jesus. So you shouldn't be offended if I point out some piece of miserable brokenness. And you should, yes, I want to follow Jesus. Thank you, right? Um, so by being in a community of believers, we got a good guard if we start hurting our heart because... The danger can be in our culture, we live so separate that people are never close enough to me that they never do see my sins, so they never are talking to me. So that's where it can be dangerous. So another way is just make sure you've got at least some deep relationships in the body with people who are going to love you enough to encourage you and are going to love you enough to challenge you when you're erring. And if you've got that in place, you're, you're going to be pretty safe and secure. I think the danger for self-deception is when you've so isolated yourself that nobody knows what's going on in your life. And... So therefore, you can really, for a long time, deceive yourself. And, you know, the, the Lord's not going to be mocked. He'll bring it to light. But that's, there's a whole message from Reformation Sunday that I'd point you to from about three weeks ago. End of October. Last Sunday in October on the podcast. Okay. Oh, you're gone that week. Yeah, oh, okay. microphone up front, please. Wow, awesome subject. Um, I pray that I have so many thoughts in my head. But one thought is, um, like you said, um, in Matthew 7, 
those people probably didn't know. But is it also safe to say that, um, like, when God is trying to chasten us and um, draw us in, he reveals things to us in our hearts. Well, for me, at being a churchgoer all my life mm. and being baptized when I was very young by my grandfather, been in church all my life, but I can... I can remember certain things that God would bring to my attention as you sit under the word of God and that my pride did not allow me to change them. Mm. So what I'm trying to say is yes. In Matthew seven, those people probably did not know and they wound up, you know, going to hell. But when God is trying to get our attention, if we respond properly and examine our hearts and allow God to make the changes in our hearts. I think we we all know. We know when God is trying to show us different things. And sometimes we either ignore it or we have too much pride to say, look, I'm a sinner. I, I'm, I'm in church. I'm thinking I'm doing this. You know what I'm saying? To yes. make the changes that God is trying to allow us to um. Oh, I think make. I think when God convicts us, there's at least three ways we can respond. Some of us on God's growing conviction repent and change and give in. And maybe there's weeks or months where we're resisting, but eventually his loving hand puts enough pressure on us. Maybe other believers come talk to us and we go, okay, I I yield. Others at least have the decency to admit, I don't want any part of Jesus, I want my sin, and they walk away. Mm -hmm. But I do think there's a third class that starts justifying or excusing their sin, Mm -hmm. downplaying it, and that's who we're probably meeting in Matthew 7. Mm. Are these people who didn't forsake their profession. They were still involved in ministry. They had just found some way to excuse lawless living, habitual lawless living with what they were doing. Somehow they were coming up with some justification. that Because Jesus identifies me, workers of lawlessness. That's what marked them. Even though they were preaching the gospel and casting out demons, they were workers of lawlessness. Somehow they had, they had justified that. So some people at least have the decency that they want, I mean, the old singer in my old band, it's heartbreaking to me that he, he didn't follow Christ, but at least had the decency to recognize, I want to pursue drinking, partying, and sleeping around, so I'm not going to follow Christ. I'm going to do that. He understood at least, I can't have two masters. You know? And so some people, when conviction comes, just break and run. Others, though, will try like the Pharisees to regulate and dumb down what God has called them to, so they can say, no, I'm still... I'm still a Christian, even though I worship other gods. Um, I mean, go to, we're in Hebrews. Let me show you one other awesome connection to Hebrews. Hebrews 12, a very often misunderstood passage. Very often misunderstood passage. Hebrews 12, 15. Um, Well, actually, let's start in 12, 12. Here's another exhortation for perseverance. Therefore, Lift your drooping hands. This comes right after the Father's disciplining you. Don't resist it. Embrace it because he loves you, right? Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's interesting. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. Pause. Root of bitterness. The ESV puts that in quotation marks. This is the part that's often misunderstood. It's a reference to Deuteronomy. It is not about interpersonal squabbles and bitterness and bitter feelings that can cause problems. That's true. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about Deuteronomy 29 that I read earlier this morning. Go to Deuteronomy 29. 
root of bitterness. ESV at least puts it in quotations, suggesting it might be an Old Testament reference. And remember the context in Hebrews 12. Someone falling short, failing to obtain the grace of God. Deuteronomy 29. Let me get there myself here. There's Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy 29. I think you'll see the context is a perfect fit. Um, So Deuteronomy 29, the beginning, these are the words, this is the renewal of the covenant. These are the words of the covenant the Lord commanded Moses to make the people of Israel in the land of Moab besides the covenant that he had made with them at Horeb. So the reason we call the book of Deuteronomy Deuteronomy, Deuteronomos, second law, God entered into the covenant with Israel at Sinai, and then before they crossed the Jordan, they re-ratify it. He lays it out again, the people a second time say, Amen. And that's what we read this morning in Deuteronomy 29. Um, what was the verse? Look at my notes here. 18. Um, yeah. No, no, not 18. That's what I'm about to read. 27. 27. Um, no, not 27. Where is it? Hold on. This is, uh, it's, it's right here on my sheet. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Um, is it 18. No, it's all the people shall say amen. It's the one that ends with that. Hold on. Look at my note sheet here. It's, uh, no, it's Deuteronomy 27, not 29. My bad. We did not read this chapter. Okay. So, um, totally wrong. Totally wrong. I know what I was thinking. Told you my brain is scrambled eggs. Pick it up in verse 10. You are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders and your officers, and all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is in your camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws the water, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord, which the Lord your God is making with you today, that he may establish you today as his people, that he may be your God as he promised you, and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It is not with you alone that I'm making the sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord your God, and with whoever is not here with us today. It's making, the whole nation of Israel is who I'm making this covenant with, okay? You know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which we passed, and you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone and silver and gold, which were among them. Now here's the warning. Tell me if this doesn't sound a little bit like the warnings we've been looking at in Hebrews. Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go serve other gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. Now there's your connection to Hebrews 12. A root, a bitter root of bitterness. And then he goes on to further describe this. This is that third case, the one who really abandons the Lord but doesn't have the decency to leave. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. So he's picturing somebody in the assembly hearing the covenant, saying, I'll receive the blessing even though I'm an idolater at heart. That's, that's the bitter fruit. The dangerous bitter fruit is someone who you hear the covenant you understand what it's calling for, and you tell yourself, the modern day would think, God will forgive me, it'll be okay. That's how I'd put it in modern Christian vernacular. God will forgive me, it'll be okay. 
I'm planning on sinning. I'm planning on committing sin. I'm planning on worshiping other gods. And it's okay. Praise the Lord. It's all grace. I'll be forgiven. That's what he's describing. I'll read it to you again. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of the sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of the moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man. And the curses written in this book will settle upon him and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. It's truly bitter and poison fruit. And so I believe the author of Hebrews is saying, beware of the same thing. You're hearing in the book of Hebrews, we need to persevere. We need to press on. And there's a danger of someone saying, that's okay for super Christians. I'm not one of them. I'm glad I'll still be saved. He's like, oh, watch out. Watch out. There's one thing to struggle with sin. It's one thing. We, we're going to fall every day. If you're planning to sin, if you're made peace with it, and that's what I'm like, somehow like, I'm a Christian who, you know, is is a drunkard. I'm a Christian who's a swindler. I'm a Christian who's, I've just, I'm at peace with this. Not sin I'm fighting, sin I'm at peace with. Watch out. That's the bitter root that he's talking about that will defile many. Um, So you're right. Plenty of people repent and return and plenty of other people just leave. But there are some who stick around and that's the one we're being told to watch out for because when that's, when that's tolerated, it leads to other people concluding, well, I guess you can love the world and pursue the world and still love Jesus because all these other people next to me are doing it. Yeah. Anyway, we're at time. I have plenty of other things to talk about. This is a great topic to go on. We could do an eight more ABS on this. So I'm happy to spend the time on it. But um, Godspeed, God bless, good day.